Bibles now, and we'll open them to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. And this evening, I want to continue the study that we began two weeks ago. Uh, This is the third message on this subject, and we're looking at the uh, subject of the blessing of intercessory prayer. And what Paul has done for us is he's laid out for us a feast of good doctrine in these first 14 verses of Ephesians. And as he comes down to the end of the first chapter, he prays for the understanding of all of these things that he's just written. And I hope that you remember that the key to this last part of the scriptures, this last section is verse number 18, where Paul prays for the eyes of their understanding to be enlightened. And I believe that we need that prayer just as much as those people needed it because we've got some difficult subjects here. And uh, there's much misunderstanding over this particular chapter. In fact, the theological world has been divided for centuries over this. And uh, in fact, some people become very hostile depending upon which side of the question that you're on. So we certainly do need understanding in these things. And I hope that uh, we have discovered some enlightenment in this. Uh, We're progressing fairly slowly over this first chapter, and I hope the Lord has opened the eyes of some folks to what uh, the Bible is teaching here in chapter 1. So let's take our Bibles. How many of you have a Bible tonight? Everybody, oh, good, lots of Bibles. Let's stand, if you would, and let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll start with verse number 15. Ephesians 1, 15. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him." The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that we may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power, and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great chapter in Ephesians. Lord, just the so many truths that we learn here. And Lord, we do pray for enlightenment, just as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that they would understand what is written here. Help us to know this, Lord, to have a better understanding of it, and help us to know you better. And we just give you the praise for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've covered a lot of ground in these first two sermons, and so I'm not going to go over all of the points that we talked about and so many different things that we spoke about in the last two weeks, but I do just want to enumerate these points for just a moment, and I'll just give you a little bit of an update on what we've been talking about. The first thing that we discussed was the praise of prayer, and the praise of prayer is found in verses 15 and 16, where Paul mentions the two most important characteristics of a Christian, and these two things are 
faith and love. And we noted that the order of these two uh, characteristics is very important in the scriptures because faith has to come first. It's always faith first because true love is grounded in true faith. You can't have true love unless you have true faith. And the Ephesians had given a good testimony of their faith and their love, so much so that Paul even says that he'd heard about them all the way uh, in the city of Rome where he was a prisoner. Then the next thing that we talked about were the petitions of prayer. Uh, And what is it here that Paul is asking for in this prayer? Well, we notice that Paul doesn't make any requests for material things. Uh, He speaks about enlightenment. He speaks about understanding. And particularly, he talks about three different areas of their understanding. Now, I only had time to discuss one of these last week, and we really didn't even get through with that one. But the first area that Paul prayed for understanding was in the area of God's plan. He said that they might understand God's plan. In other words, how is God working, and what is God doing? And we understand that God has a plan from the foundation of the world, and all things go according to that plan. Everything proceeds from that plan. And I think that we would have to agree that it would be foolish for the all-wise, omnipotent God to create this world and create all things that go on here without a plan in mind and not having a reason for why he did this and then not to control the outcome of what this uh, creation is all about. A builder always starts with a plan. He doesn't make things up as he goes along. Well, the plan has many different parts, and Paul prays that they might understand what part that they actually play in this plan. And so he begins by mentioning their calling. And the first aspect of the plan and their involvement in this plan is God's call. And so he prays that they might understand the hope of their calling. I explained last week that the calling is, is uh, when God brings the elected ones to the understanding of the gospel of Christ. And they will not be saved until they believe. No person will be saved without belief. And God calls us in such a way that he opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. And he makes us or helps us to understand what the gospel message is all about. And God's call is always an effectual call. It always ends exactly with mission accomplished. Now, I want to move on this evening to the second aspect of uh, the Christian's personal involvement with God's plan. And the second part of this is God's consolation. In other words, Paul is praying that they might understand the prize that's been awarded. What is it that's coming afterward? And what has God promised us? Now, usually when we think of consoling, uh, we think about consoling hurt feelings. Something has gone wrong or somebody becomes disappointed. We want to console them. And we think of comfort when we think of consoling when things are wrong. Well, Paul uses this word in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And he says, And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. So how is it that Christians are able to endure suffering? How can we go through hardships and how can we endure this problem of being outcast in the world? Well, it's by understanding that the suffering that comes into our lives is all worthwhile. There's something that's coming later. God's promised something later. And the scriptures teach us that the sufferings that we have in this life are nothing compared to what our future blessings will be. 
But we're not just talking about future blessings here. The Bible also tells us that these things are our current and present possession. And Christ uh, gives us all things upon our belief in Him. At the very moment of belief, we have all things in Christ. So God's plan includes calling us to receive these things that are reserved for us. We're made partakers of Christ. And so that in chapter 2, Paul says, uh, this is in verses 5 and 6, "...even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus." And we notice there he says, heavenly places. Have you ever thought about this? Why is it that God doesn't tell us more about heaven? Why doesn't God explain more about that? I mean, the Bible has so much written in it about life in this world and how to go through this life. And our attention is always drawn to the problems and the cares and things that we have to endure here. Well, why doesn't God give us more information about heaven? Well, I think the reason is that heaven itself is just so far above our comprehension that Paul doesn't even pray that we might understand heaven. And that's because we can understand heaven. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talked about being transported to heaven. And Paul was enabled to get a glimpse of the things that were there. And he writes in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, he talks about this. But we notice when he writes about it, he doesn't go into any detail. He doesn't tell us even one single thing about what he saw in heaven. And you would think that with Paul writing this and seeing this, that that the thoughts would flow so fast from his pen that he'd burn a hole in the paper. But Paul doesn't do that. I mean, uh, we would think that he couldn't even contain himself trying to explain to us what he saw in heaven. But Paul doesn't say a word about it. The only thing that he says is he heard unspeakable words which were not lawful for men to utter. And so what he was saying is, I don't have the capacity. I can't even explain it to you. I don't know how to tell you about heaven. And folks... Heaven is our consolation, and heaven is so magnificent that we really can't explain it. I can't tell you what it's all about. You know, I have lots of people ask me questions about heaven. What will heaven be like? What goes on in heaven? I can't tell you very much about it. I don't know very much about it. No no one actually does. The only thing that I can tell you about heaven is that you should think about the highest possible thing that you can think of in your imagination, the very best things that you can think of. Think about those things and then slap yourself silly because you shot too low because you just don't know what heaven's all about. We can't understand it. Heaven's beyond our comprehension. So God's plan for us is deliverance from eternal death and abundance of eternal life. And Paul prays that we might understand that plan. Now, the second thing that he prays in understanding, he prays to understand God's power. In verse number 19, he prays that the eyes of their understanding might be enlightened, that they might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. So Paul is not praying that the Ephesians would be given power, but that they might understand the power that's already working in them. Now, there are two aspects that I'd like to consider about power, two aspects of power in this verse. And the first one is the inward power. And this is the power that's used in the conversion of a lost sinner to Christ. Now, some people uh, have a view of salvation that I can achieve salvation by the help of God. Or I can achieve salvation through the help that God gives me. And so they think it's me plus the power of God. And in fact, that's the view of the hyper-fundamentalist. 
Because in their view, faith is a work. And they think that man can exercise faith at any given moment. He doesn't need special enabling grace to to express faith. And that's because they think that faith is already a seed that's implanted in all people. And since all people have this germ of faith, all that they need to do is just dredge this up at the appropriate moment. Well, if a man already has faith, then according to the Scriptures, it would have to be a dead faith. Because we remember that the Bible says that we are dead in trespasses and sin. I mean, I've already spoken about the use of the word dead in the Scriptures when it refers to spiritual being. Dead means dead. Dead doesn't mean partially alive. It doesn't mean that there's a spark of life. And it doesn't mean there's a seed of faith. And it doesn't mean that there's anything spiritually worthwhile in any person. The sinner has nothing in him that's good. It's all dead. And he's so dead that it's useless to expect a spiritually dead person to be able to exercise faith any more than it would be we could expect a, a person who is physically dead to get up and walk. It cannot happen. And God uses this terminology to get this point across. The only way that spiritually dead people can come to life is by the power of God. And the word power here in verse number 19 is the same word for power that we find in Romans 1.16. And there the Bible says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So it's the gospel that has the power to bring spiritually dead people to life so they can believe. Now, here we ought to see that the word of God fits so perfectly together that our minds immediately ought to understand this, that the preaching of the gospel has not called all men to life. Not everyone who hears the gospel believes. And so that shows us that the words themselves don't have any power. Speaking the word of God alone doesn't have any power. The power is supplied when the Holy Spirit energizes that person to believe. And that brings us back to the discussion we had last week. The call becomes effectual when the Holy Spirit puts the power behind it. See, the gospel is like a a cold car engine... Uh, on a cold morning. And there's all the power that could possibly be available there. There's a powerful engine that's under the hood. But that engine can never move the car until the key is turned. It's not until that electric spark hits the fuel in the cylinder that the car starts and the power is exercised. Something happens. Well, the power is unleashed through that. And so that's the way the words of the Bible are. The words of the Bible are like that. It takes the Holy Spirit, who's the electric spark that makes this gospel burst forth into power. And when that spiritual key is turned, then spiritual life is the result of it. Let me quote to you from one commentator. He said, It takes the power of God to make a Christian. What unworthy views we often have of Christianity and being Christian. We think so much in terms of ourselves and what we do and what we have decided and what we have taken up and proposed to do. We certainly have much to do. But the entire teaching of the New Testament emphasizes above all else that we can do nothing until God has first done something in us. Now, I would ask you, where today is the preaching of Christ's power? You see, what preachers are doing today is constantly pressing for decisions. What is your decision? It's your decision that matters. And so they believe that becoming a Christian is as easily accomplished as just deciding one morning to turn on the coffee maker. I mean, you could become a Christian just as easily. Well, folks, that is a complete misunderstanding of the devastating effects of the fall of man. 
We just don't really understand what happened when man fell. And there's no excuse why we wouldn't know this because the scriptures are very clear about it. There's no excuse for ignorance of God's word. Not when the Bible says so clearly that we're dead in trespasses and sin. And the fact that anyone ever believes the gospel is only a testimony to the power of God. Someone said to bring one soul to believe in God and in Christ demands the exceeding greatness of the strength of God's eternal might. Now, I understand that there are some who say that they will never be converted to the complexities of the doctrine of grace. Well, folks, I will never be converted to the simplicity of decisional regeneration. Decisional regeneration is too easy because it doesn't say anything at all about the power of God. What it does is to rest salvation in man, and that's nothing but a perversion of the gospel. So God works inwardly. It's his power alone That brings us to life. And there is no such thing as cooperative salvation. Salvation is all of God. But also Paul speaks of the outward power. We notice that secondly. He talks about outward power. There's an outward demonstration of God's power. Now what is the greatest demonstration of God's power? Well some would say that it's creation. God speaking the worlds into existence. I mean that's a demonstration of God's power. And certainly we would never deny that. It takes awesome power to do what God did in creating the world. Others would say that the greatest demonstration of God's power is in the miracles that we find in the Bible. Look in the Old Testament and see how God parted the Red Sea. See the times that that God sent down fire from heaven. Or you may even remember the time that God caused the sun to go backwards in the sky. And that's an awesome demonstration of power. Well, of course it is. Uh, It takes mighty power to do those kinds of things. But that's not what Paul chose here. That's not what he chose to be an example of God's power. Paul's choice is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. He says, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, why do you suppose that Paul would use that? I mean, why, why is this his example of God's greatest power? Well, I believe that he chose the resurrection because in this part of the scriptures, he wants the Ephesians to understand what part they play in this. How is it that they are affected by what's taken place? Where do they fit in God's plan? And they fit in because of Christ's resurrection. Now, what does Christ's resurrection say to us? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. He says, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles just a minute to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read some scriptures here. And we read from this because this aspect of our hope is so essential that Paul writes some very powerful words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, let's look at verse 14. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, 
we are of all men most miserable. Now, Paul points to the power of God in Christ's resurrection because here is where the consolation comes from. Why can we go through trials and hardships of life? It's all because of the resurrection. And if all that was accomplished in our salvation is that in the end we would die as dogs and then we'd pass out of existence, then there'd be no hope or no consolation in that at all. Folks, I'm, I'm glad that I'm not an atheist. I'm glad that I'm not an agnostic. Now, these are people who believe they came from animals. And then they believe that they're going to die like animals. And we notice that in between, they also live like animals, don't they? Well, there's great power and a great prayer here for understanding of what God has done. You see, it's God who brings us to life. And the scriptures tell us that it is an everlasting life counted upon by the resurrection of Christ. Now, as you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is known as the resurrection chapter, the great resurrection chapter, and Paul writes more about this. Let's look at verse 51 of this same chapter. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that it's written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul chooses the resurrection because he shows us here that the very worst enemy that we have has been defeated by Christ. And what is our very worst enemy? It's death. Nothing can be worse than death to us. And Christ has conquered that. Death is swallowed up in victory, the Bible says. And that comes through our faith in Christ. So no wonder that Paul prays for understanding in these areas. No wonder he prays for understanding of God's plan and for God's power. But then we find in these verses a third petition of prayer. And Paul prays for them to understand God's person. Who is Jesus Christ? I mean, why do we talk about Jesus? And why don't we talk about some other man? I mean, why don't we talk about other great men who have lived? Why isn't our hope and our confidence in people like Abraham Lincoln? Or or why don't we put our hope and trust in Ronald Reagan or or Albert Einstein or Martin Luther or John Calvin? Why, Why isn't our faith in those? One of the reasons is that they didn't rise from the grave. I mean, that, that's one reason why we don't. But another reason is this. They were truly great men, no question. But they do not occupy the position of Christ. So what do we need to understand about God's person? Well, first of all, we need to understand the rank of God. Now, let's notice what Paul says in verses 20 and 21. He says, "...which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come." Almost all commentators are agreed that these terms that we read here, principality and power and might and dominion, these have reference to the angels. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. 
And then we can look over in chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse number 10, and there it says, to the intent that now uh, unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. And so most people believe that these terms that Paul is using here refers to the angels. Now, we would think, why is it that Paul would bring up the subject of angels? Well, one of the early heresies that was circulating among the first century churches was angel worship. People didn't understand the relationship between Christ and the angels. And so what Paul is telling us is that Christ outranks the angels. The angels, of course, are next in power to God, but Christ is above the angels. Now, you've heard me say it before that many of the heresies that we encounter today are, in fact, very old heresies. If you look at the New Age movement today, they don't see very much difference between Christ and angels. And then we think about the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church for centuries has taught wrongly about angels. One of the things that Catholics believe about angels is that you can pray to angels, that angels can be intercessors or mediators between you and God. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the work of Christ is not unique. That in some respects, at least, the angels are are just like Christ. There is no difference between them. Well, those are old heresies, and, and these were things that have been floating around for centuries. Now, Paul sets the record straight here. He says, there is no angel that has the power of God. God outranks them all. Christ outranks them all. In fact, the angels derive their power from Christ. He gives them the power. And do you know that holds true for the devil as well? The devil, of course, is a fallen angel. He was created as an angel. But the devil only has power that's given by God's permission. See, the devil can't ever do anything that God doesn't give him permission to do. Well, that would beg the question for us then is then, uh, if God allows the devil his power, then why doesn't God do something about him? And why doesn't God stop the devil? Why doesn't he keep him from doing all the things that he does? Can't God do that? Well, certainly God could do it. Well, why doesn't he? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know all the answers to it. All I know is it's part of God's plan to glorify himself. The rise and the fall of Satan are all part of God's plan to glorify himself. Do you know that that one thing right there would be enough to tell us that the salvation of man is not the chief end of God's creation? Because if it were, then God would have destroyed the devil a long time ago. He would have gotten rid of the devil because he's the one that prevents us from being saved. Or he's the God of this world, the Bible says. He, he keeps our eyes blinded to the gospel of Christ. And so why doesn't God just get rid of the devil? Well, God allows the devil room to operate because even the misery that the devil creates somehow brings glory to God. I don't understand how it all does that, but it must because God only allows things that further or speak about his glory. And so we see that the chief end of man, again, as we've said so many times before, the chief end of creation, I should say, is not the salvation of man. The chief end is the glory of God. That's what we're working towards. So Paul's intent here in mentioning the angels is to show us God's rank. God is above all of creation. Well, then Paul prays for further understanding of God's person by speaking about the reign of God. And the reign of Christ is found in verse number 22. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. And that statement is a quotation from Psalm chapter 8 verse 6. Where the psalmist said, Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. 
Now, do you know what this part of the Scripture tells me? It tells me that God's plan is a consistent plan. God's plan is progressing as quickly or as slowly as God intends it to progress. You see, 1,000 years ago, or 1,000 years, I should say, before Christ, the psalmist was already referring to the coming church. 1,000 years before Christ instituted the church, the psalmist is already speaking about this. And he's telling us there's a gathering that's coming. The gospel is going to be preached to all nations. And that will be the function of the church. Well, those people would wonder then, I mean, how can God gather all things together in the dispensation of the fullness of time when the gospel hasn't been preached to everybody, when everybody hasn't heard the gospel, when the Gentiles haven't been included? And so you see, 1,000 years before Christ came, before the Jews knew anything at all about Gentile salvation, God gave the psalmist these words, and he made this statement, Christ will rule over Jews and Gentiles alike. And not only rule over them, but they'll be in the same kind of relationship. Now, the Jews would readily admit that God will rule over the Gentiles, but never would they admit that they would be in the same covenant relationship as the Jews would be in. But we notice what Paul says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 14. He says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And so that means that whatever divides Jewish believers from Gentile believers has been abolished. Both have become one in Christ. And so Christ reigns over one as well as the other as equal subjects. And they have the same rights and privileges. Now, that's a great blessing for the Gentiles because what that says to them is the class system is gone. It tells us that the racial system has been done away with. It also tells us that the physical theocratic kingdom has been abolished. We're all one in Christ. Just as someone has said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that's the way it is for all people. Now, I think this tells us something else. And that is the consistency of this statement, making it 1,000 years before Christ came. And for the church is actually established, making the statement to those people and then making the same statement to, to church age believers tells us this. There are no varieties of salvation. Salvation is one and the same. Now, maybe you're not aware of this, but there are some Baptists who believe that salvation has not always been by grace. And they will tell you that in the past times, there were periods when salvation was by works. And they'll tell you that in the future, there will be a time when salvation will once again be by works. But I don't think the Bible teaches that. Uh, God's salvation is one way. It's only been one way, and it's always been by the grace of God through the death of Jesus Christ and the shed blood of Christ on the cross. It will never be any other way. Salvation has always been and always will be by the grace and the power of God alone. But you see what happens when people misunderstand grace and faith? Uh, It's not too much of a stretch to get to works for salvation. Now, that can come easy to you when you believe that faith is the work of man. But folks, the the plan of God for this time and all time, and this is what so many people miss, I'm afraid, the plan of God for all time is the covenant that existed between the Father and the Son. We read about that covenant, did we? How many times in John chapter 17, verse 2? There is a covenant that exists between the two, and it stretches all the way to eternity past. You have the Father electing, and you have the Son redeeming. And folks, if we would just stick with what the Bible says, we would not run into all these egregious errors concerning salvation. 
And that's why I say that proper interpretation of Ephesians chapter 1 is essential to our worldview. Ephesians gives us the correct worldview. Now, I want you to notice something else, that Paul mentions the church in Christ's reign. So he's not just talking about powers and principalities and not just the angels, and he's not talking about men in general, but he's speaking about the church. And he tells us that the church is under the supreme reign of Christ. And I would point out to you this evening that there is no head of the church but Christ. And one of the reasons why we are an independent Baptist church is because there is no head of the church but Christ. And so that means that we don't answer to a denominational headquarters. We don't have a synod or a presbytery that rules over us. We don't have any head but Christ. And the church functions with no other head but Christ. The bylaws of our church say, This church shall not surrender its sovereignty to any outside organization. And that means that there's no one who has the authority to rule and reign over this church but Christ. So when we choose a pastor for our church, we don't look to an outside organization. We don't look to another church to tell us who should be the pastor here or who should be our officers or what we should do. This church functions as a democratic body under the headship of Christ. Now let me mention to you though, uh, one of the, uh, or the, I should say, the heinous, most heinous, abrogation of the reign of Christ over the church. The most despicable, diabolical system that was ever put in place in the church is the office of the Pope. It's blasphemy to say that the Pope reigns in the stead of Christ. And it's blasphemy to say that the Pope is the visible head of the church on earth. And it's blasphemy for the Pope to allow people to bow down to him and to kiss his ring and to dress in regal robes and to say that he is the vicar of Christ on this earth. Folks, uh, we're not reformed here, but I can certainly go along with reformers on this. They rejected the Pope and they said, we have no head but Christ. Folks, the Pope is not a godly, saintly man. No matter what people will tell you, he's not a godly, saintly man. He's diabolical. His teachings are straight from the pit of hell. And there are people all over the world who die and go to hell believing what Roman Catholicism teaches. Now, the Reformers were so opposed to the Pope that they termed him the Antichrist. I don't know if he's the Antichrist, but he certainly is Antichrist. Now, maybe some of you listening tonight or perhaps someone who would hear a recording of this message would say, well, that's way too harsh. How can you say things like that? That's not being charitable. Well, I want to ask you something. What would, you, what would you think about someone if your children got involved with someone who lied to them and manipulated them? And what if they got involved with someone who, in, in, who involved them in things that were just black and wicked and eventually caused their death? What would you think of a person like that? Well, the Pope and the Church of Rome have done far worse than that. I mean, the whole place is riddled with corruption, so they don't cause temporal death. They cause spiritual death. And people end up in the fires of hell believing what they say. And they perpetuate a lie that is blacker than black. So, I don't have any problem speaking about the heresies of Roman Catholicism. doesn't mean that I hate Roman Catholics. I mean, we'll pray for them. Uh, we'll, we'll witness to them. We, we want them to be converted. But I'm not going to say good things about their doctrine because there is no good in it. I mean, that whole thing is is satanic. I mean, it's as evil as Satan himself. So we have to have the correct view of the church. And Paul prays for the correct view. Now, I want to finish the message tonight. We'll close this first chapter with this statement. 
Our last statement, there is a living connection between you and Christ. So Paul calls Christ a head, and he says in verse number 23 that the church is his body. Well, a head doesn't exist without a body, and the body thrives because it has the head. You cut off the head, and there isn't any life. See, there's a living connection between you and Christ and those who are part of Christ's church, and that's because he's the, he's the head and we are the body. Now, verse number 23 here is a very special verse because Paul chooses the words very carefully and also very specifically. He says, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now, the remarkable aspect of this passage is that Christ does not consider himself complete without the church. I don't want you to misunderstand that statement. I'm not saying that, there, that Christ lacks something in himself, and so Christ is imperfect. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, the scriptures would de- dispel that notion very quickly with this phrase, he filleth all in all. But what I mean is there must be a connection between the head and the body. You don't have a living organism without the head, and you don't have one without the body. It can't be just head, and it can't just be body. You have to have both to have a living organism. I want to read to you what John Calvin wrote. He said, This is the highest honor of the church, that until he is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What consolation it is for us to learn that not until we are along with him does he possess all his parts or wish to be regarded as complete. Hence the first epistle to the Corinthians, when the apostle discusses largely the metaphor of the human body, he includes under the single name of Christ the whole church. Now folks, let me tell you that everything about that statement would be wrong unless we understand all the preceding points that we've made in the first chapter of Ephesians. You see, this would be all wrong if we had uh, the, the view of the modern church because they see Christ's completion in the worth of, um, of worth of man. And it's what man does instead of what the worth of Christ is. And so they see the completion of the church in the power of personal decision-making rather than in the power of Christ. And so they see Christ as complete because they have actually helped Christ to become complete. Well, you can't accept Paul's last statement of the chapter with any other view than this, that God is all in all. Salvation is all of God. There is no such thing as a synergistic view of salvation. It cannot and it will not work. It's not biblical. It's not Christian to believe synergism is the way that people are saved. Well, William Hendrickson said this. He said, as to his divine essence... Christ is in no sense whatever dependent on or capable of being completed by the church. But listen, but as bridegroom, he is incomplete without the bride. As vine, he cannot be thought of without the branches. As shepherd, he cannot be seen without his sheep. And so as the head, he finds his full expression in the body, the church. Now, maybe that would help us to understand a little bit better why Paul wants the Ephesians, to understand this. We can see that we are one with Christ, and only because of Christ are we anything. And once we're joined to Christ, we can never be separated from him. And this is what all this first chapter has been about. Folks, this is a great chapter. And I hope in coming down to the end that everybody is in agreement with Paul's worldview. And this is far different than what's being taught in most churches today. 
But I think looking at it this way is the only way that we can look at God. It's the only way that we can look at ourselves. And it's the only way that we can look at the world. And I hope you've learned something and help you, hope you understand why I preach the doctrines of grace in the first chapter of Ephesians. Because this is how God wants us to view him and the world in general. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the great opportunity we've had to preach your word and to expound the truths of Ephesians chapter 1. Lord, we look forward to other great truths that we'll learn as we go through this. Help us all, Lord, to understand that you are all in all. All sufficiency is in you. We can find none in ourselves. Lord, bless our our people here in this church. Help us to understand your word better every day. Bless us throughout this week and bring us into your house on Sunday and give us a great opportunity to worship then. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.